Report. This is your boy, T, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. Just getting set in here. We are broadcasting on innerlightradio.com, YouTube at the Dr. T. Hassan Johnson channel. Just getting set. Okay. And we are also broadcasting on Facebook uh, from my actual Facebook page. So I hope everybody is well. It has been a crazy week uh, in all kinds of ways. Um, for me, mainly because classes started last week. So, um, you know, I'm trying to get used to uh, getting everything going, uh, teaching and doing the show. So forgive me. I'm kind of ba balancing multiple things. I want to shout out some of the people I see in the chat uh, on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, Adam, what's going on? Um, uh, Nevok, Julius, Damon, what's happening? Ian, you know, so we got a few people in here already. Support the show. Uh, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. You can do that on Cash App. You can do that on PayPal. You can do that on Patreon, where I also have uh, the film review series, uh, most particularly for parents of sons. Uh, so you can actually use film as a way of teaching everything from manhood to family values. So check that out on Patreon. Uh, it's a $20 a month subscription. Uh, and the next thing I'll probably do will be Lovecraft Country on HBO. Uh, so definitely check that out if you're interested. Uh, what's up, Rashid? NJ Progressive. Uh, Patrick is in here. Uh, Malika, what's going on? So it's good to see people. Um, we're getting it going. And of course, the last couple of days has also been crazy for a whole different set of reasons. Uh, part of that having to do with some recent killings that show us that in America, the deaths of black men is still business as usual. So that hasn't changed, despite that people may want it to. Uh, Malika, appreciate that support. Eric, what's going on? Um, uh, Mr. T8, uh, what's happening? Right. So, um, Jarvis, what's happening? Chaos, what's going on? Um, yeah, you can hit me on the email through my website. That's uh, www.thassanjohnson.com. So check that out and hopefully, uh, you can, you can email it through there if you need to get in, get in contact with me. All right. So, Y'all know what I like to do is uh, kind of hit up some current events. And today we're going to do that um, because we have quite a few to catch up on to give you a sense of some of the things that I think are important, both to black men in general, but also just, you know, in general. Right. Uh, however, what we're going to add to that today is I started a series last week where we were talking about a black male agenda, a black male political agenda. And uh, we put up some bullet points and I've had some additions that I'm going to show you uh, from one of you. Right. So this is going to be an ongoing thing. You can feel free to email me uh, additional points for the blackmail political agenda that I will add to and display uh, every episode. I get new points added. Right. And if you guys have any suggestions on how you'd like to see that publicized, let me know. I'm happy to. Rashid, appreciate that support. Um, but that's the way uh, we're going to go about it, because so we could have some talking points. We can have some bullet points on what is important to black males. Because remember, this is separate from a black political agenda, right? Uh, this is some work that we've seen a variety of different people doing over the last few years, uh, putting together a black agenda, because for the most part, there hasn't been a coherent black agenda. I agree with that argument. I think there needs to be one, most especially when politicians are courting our votes. They've come to take our votes for granted. And I definitely think there needs to be a black agenda. However, because of the way that the gynarchy functions, the way sexuality and, and gender function in our community post-1970s, there needs to be a clearly stated black male 
political agenda because much of the black political agenda often overlooks the distinct situations, the distinct needs that black men face. So we have a black male agenda. I'm going to go over it again today, but I'm going to show you some of the new points added uh, by one of you. So in the meantime, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to get started on some of the um, current events. Uh, I do need to say to my black geeks out there, you may or may not recognize it. Some of you with an eagle eye may see it. I got my newest sword on the uh, on the uh, palette over here. So I'm happy about that. I've been waiting for this piece for a while. So if you look toward the top, you can see um, the blade sword, Wesley Snipes blade. But just underneath it, I got uh, the spear and the sword from the Hellboy 2, uh, the Dark Elf. But uh, nevertheless, that's, that's for my geeks, uh, those of you out there. Who, uh, who understand what I'm talking about. Uh, anyway, so happy about that. Um, trying to get a bunch of things going and at the same time um, trying to make sense of some of the things we're seeing going on in the world. All right. So let me get this here. Put up a few things. There's some, been some recent things going on that I just, oh man, uh, have to make sense of. Right. Okay. So as you can see today, we're talking about the reality of black men's disposable role as CompuSurfs. I've covered this in another show. The whole concept of CompuSurfs is a, is a bringing together of two basic ideas, the concubine and the surf. And this in many ways has to do with the social expectation of black men, both in the larger society, but more particularly within black America. The idea that black men are not only disposable, but their roles are to serve as sexual concubines as well as serfs. Right, who are really just designed to serve, you lift, bear that tote, so on and so forth. What's up, Professor Conroe? I see you here. I know you got a lecture a little bit later. I'm going to see if I can make it tonight, but please make sure I get that link. I want to support you. Um, let me see some of the people in the chat here dropping a few things. Uh, the one, appreciate that. Congratulations, Gold Professor. Thanks for the support, sir. Um, so, uh, looking at the disposability, right? So the idea of the CompuSurf and, and how our lives and our deaths can be taken for taken for granted. We don't talk as much about our lives because there's all kinds of contestation, contestation and shaming that goes on. We talk about what black men experience in their own community, right? But, even, but it's clearly evident in our deaths how we're perceived and how our deaths are often used for everybody's advancement but black men themselves. And one of the biggest indicators of that is how much policy has been developed in the last few decades to stem the tide of those deaths, right? Very little, and yet and still the social expectations play on. So we're, we're gonna continue to deal with some of this. What's up, Brandon, uh, Adam, all right? Uh, so let's go, uh, all right? So first off, in terms of some of the current events, I want you guys to support uh, uh, DominicMag.com, check him out, uh, Dominic himself, the founder of the magazine, the writer, one of the main writers, of course, has been supportive of the black masculinist movement from the beginning. And I want to not only shout out the brother, uh, Brandon, appreciate that Venmo support. Not only want to shout out the brother, I also want to make sure that uh, we support him. So he's often putting up bullet points that come out of the productions of uh, the work of people like myself, uh, people like Dr. Tommy Curry, people like Dr. Ronald Neal. Um, also, even on you know here on YouTube, make sure you check out Green Gorilla. Uh, all obviously stay in support of uh, people like BGS, you know, Valdez, the angry man who's who's doing a show right now 
and I'm angry. I actually had to stop listening to make sure I did my own, but it's a fabulous show. And he said he was going to actually post it on his website and leave it up for free. And what he's doing is he, he's refuting some of the primary feminist talking points that have been going on as far as um, black men and the perceived treatment and, and how they're perceived overall as it relates to uh, the 1970s and onward, actually the 1960s and onward. He's done, a, he's done a beautiful overview several times in the past, but today is a nice, concise breakdown. Uh, and this is particularly good, not only for your own edification, but if you have people you want to share this information with and it's difficult to know what kind of productions to share, this is a good one. You could definitely send people so they can do. But you can also send them to Dominic.mag, uh, DominicMag.com, excuse me. And uh, and kind of go from there. So check the magazine out, online magazine, uh, and the advancing uh, black masculinist movement. Black masculinism is the concept I came up with that uh, you can find out more about on my blog, uh, newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com, and it's actually one of the spaces where you can kind of see some of the early discussions about what black masculinism is and, and the need for it. And I continued that work here on my channel, for example. Right. So. Uh, one of the first things up in the news, uh, parents say their six-year-old son was not allowed to return to a predominantly black private school because of his locks. Right? This is something that uh, I posted on my page a few days ago. And uh, Ricardo, appreciate the cash app support. Uh, and it definitely lets us know about what things we can also do to ourselves. Right? Cincinnati Christian School accused of banning black students' dreadlocks. Um, Ohio parent Christina Johnson is speaking out after learning that her son, Aston, attended, uh, uh, oh, the, the Cincinnati school her son, Aston, attended, told her the six-year-old can't come back to school if he continues wearing dreadlocks. Now, this is, in, this is important, and it's particularly important because uh, one of the things that I remember debating with a Black feminist about a few years ago was this idea of hair discrimination, and basically one of the things she argued was that Black women were the only ones to experience hair discrimination, right? She said that that was particularly something that only uh, black women deal with and therefore um, black men need to sit down and be quiet. Well, in response to that, since debates often tend to be um, kind of empty in a certain respect and, and between her and I, nobody else would see it. I wrote a piece again on my blog, newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. And the piece is entitled Race, Discriminatory Grooming and Intersectional and intersectionality in employment practices, a brief observation by T. Hassan Johnson, right? And in this piece, it's very short. It's only a couple paragraphs, right? Because as BGS warned me, he said people don't read, which is one of the reasons I transitioned into YouTube because I wanted to get the idea out and a lot of people don't support. BGS is in the chat. What's going on? Ian Graves, I see you. What's happening, right? Uh, and so one of the things I pointed out in this piece is not only do black men experience you know, hair discrimination, right? Um, it, it's particularly important when you factor in unemployment, right? And I pointed out here, black men's unemployment rates are usually 7.1 to black women's 6.4 as far as 2016. But what's also come out since that time is that in 30 major cities, and you know, around the United States, black black folk only collectivize in certain urban areas, only, come, you know, uh, uh, populate certain major urban a areas. So in 30 major cities, black men find themselves unemployed at rates of over 40 to 50%. And that was before COVID, 
right? So we know back in February and March, half of Black America lost its employment. A couple months later, half of America lost employment, which should tell you that Black America is in dire straits, but Black men have been in dire straits for much longer than the last few months. That said, when you start to talk about issues like hair discrimination, some of the data we can see coming out, right, is that uh, Black men who are by far the most frequent sufferers of skin ailment, uh, -folliculitis, <laughs> pseudofolliculitis barbi, or PFB. PFB is caused when tightly curled beard hairs sharpened by shaving curve back and re-enter the skin, producing inflammation, bumps, and infections. Although estimates vary, medical authorities say the ailment afflicts perhaps half of black men who shave, and that about half of all those afflicted have conditions serious enough that they should not shave at all. So if you work in occupations that require shaving, you have hair discrimination issues in the sense that black men can find themselves unemployed over something they can't necessarily control. So the, you can see the image that I use here, Nelson, appreciate that support. Um, you can see the image that I use here is something that you know black men in particular are very familiar with, right? So it's not just hair, it's not just you know locks and extensions and braid, you know, and, and yes, I've even seen weaves. It's something you can find on YouTube. Um, black men not only have discrimination on the basis of those things, and I'm saying that as someone with locks who's experienced that discrimination in various forms myself, you also have something that black women don't generally suffer from. And there are some that do. There are some that do in terms of beard, you know, hair growth on the face. Uh, but overwhelmingly, this is a black male issue. So if you want to get more uh, familiarized with that piece of data, check out the piece, Race, Discriminatory Grooming and Intersectionality in, in, in Employment Practices, a brief observation on my blog, Black Masculinism and New Black Masculinities. That's on newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. So just to kind of give you some information, some talking points when people make up ins insane, inane statements about what black men suffer from and what they don't. Often it's coming from a position of wanting to tell you we don't suffer from anything and whatever. So it, it's absolutely ridiculous, but it's nonetheless some of the things that we end up having to deal with. So just kind of wanted to put you on alert. But in this instance, one of the things we're seeing is, um, you know, hair discrimination coming from a black source, an African-American private school. So just to kind of get that information out to you, uh, black men do suffer from hair discrimination. Uh, there was a boy, a young man a few years ago who was a class valedictorian that got ousted from his own celebration ceremony because he had a, a goatee, I believe. You had boys, you know, so this kind of thing has gone on for quite a while and it's not something black males are are, are immune to. Rodney Combe, Rodney, I appreciate that support. Um, all right. Next one up, black homeowners face discrimination. This is coming from a piece that I ran across on Facebook. Shout out to Dan Price, Laura Casey uh, about this piece. Mixed race family got in their home appraised for 330,000, way below the local average for a second appraisal. They removed all black family photos slash culture items and had only the white dad home. The appraisal went up to 465,000. Black home owned homes are devalued 23% on average. Uh, Laura Casey on Facebook mentions that in a neighborhood where homes sell from 350 to 550, this couple's home was appraised uh, below that range. Uh, suspecting racial animus, the wife, a black attorney, removed pictures of the family and friends and left with their son to go shopping, leaving her white husband alone to meet the appraiser. The new appraisal came in more than 40 percent higher. Right. So these are the kind of things that black folk suffer from. But you can notice in this story the absence of black men. And one of the things I talked about 
in past uh, shows, but also in my recent show with Gus the Renegade on the cows, you can find on both SoundCloud and I think he'll be posting it to Facebook soon. I mean, to use YouTube soon. I don't know if he has, but um, the context of white supremacy, the cows is his show. I did an interview with him last week. And one of the things he asked me about was my own experiences with housing discrimination. Uh, and it may also be related to hair discrimination as well as outright racial discrimination. Right. But nonetheless, um, here in Fresno for 12 years now, I've moved twice. I've moved the time I first got here. And then I had to move after a few years in terms of the, um, the uh, recession, right? And I had a situation where the house I was renting, the owner was no longer using my rent payments toward the mortgage and I had to leave and I ended up moving two doors down. But the point I made was that I applied just like I did the first time to over 50 different places with a doctorate in hand, with a guaranteed job at Fresno State. And by the second time I was approaching tenure and, and I may have already had it, but anyway, either way, um, you know, denied housing in 50 out of 50 applications. Right. The only reason I got into this house and eventually bought it was mainly because I lived next to the guy for five years. And as he said, upon talking to me for the first time, he, he hadn't seen any police at my door in five years. So I must be safe. Right. These are the kind of things black men suffer from that nobody talks about. And in this particular story, you see an absence of the black male presence. And yet you can see what tends to happen with that. Uh, shout out to Charles. Appreciate you coming through. Uh, Dr. Uh, Officer uh, Faulkner. Um, Professor Conroe, appreciate that support. Um, see a number of people coming through. I'm glad to see y'all. We got about 220 watching. Please like, share, and subscribe. I'm very close to getting 10,000 subscribers, so that would be a good thing to see. I hope we can kind of make that happening. Uh, Black to Death, what's going on? Rodney, see you in there. David, what's going on? Joe Average Brother. Um, let me see. Oh, yeah. Got to put that up. Joe actually says, I caught hell in the Air Force due to PFB, uh, though there was a regulation allowing a period of facial rest from shaving. Most of my superior officers totally ignored my rights. Absolutely. And so this is further problematized when people in the community, especially activists who often have a camera in front of them, will outright deny the experiences of black men because it doesn't immediately suit their arguments. Ergo, we don't have these experiences. All right. Um, so all those kind of things. Drew, appreciate that support. He actually says as well. Yeah, I had that neck hair problem in the military. A lot of young black men did. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is, in many instances, uh, the early signs of what tends to be hair discrimination. And see, this is the thing. Each type of discrimination we're familiar with often hits black men in ways we don't expect. And we take our experiences for granted when really the, specif the specifics are of our experiences actually are examples of the type of discrimination we look at, but they don't present that way because nobody else talks about it that way, right? Anytime you hear anybody talk about hair discrimination, most of the time they're talking about black women and whether or not they're able to wear braids at work, right? That's, or, or natural, you know, that, that's the discussion. Nobody talks about PFB. Nobody talks about facial issues. You talk about sexual discrimination, a form of sexual discrimination that goes against the grain that black men experience is not necessarily the hypersexual kind of perspective of us or us being seen as walking phalluses that are that are that only exist to serve other people's sexual pleasures. One example of sexual discrimination that black men particularly face is the fear of black men, the stereotype based fear of black men and the results of that fear. If people won't work with you 
because they're afraid of you if you're a big black guy. And I've had this experience. Well, I've even had this, this experience with students. If they fear that you're going to rape them or fear that you're going to physically harm them and you've done nothing or said nothing to bring that about. And yet your job might be in, uh, in, 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 you know, you might be in danger of losing your job simply on the basis of how you look as a black male. That actually is a form of sexual discrimination. But we don't think of it in those terms because we've been taught to think of sex discrimination and harassment solely in terms of what women experience. You know, having their bodies touched without, uh, you know, permission, uh, you know, jokes in the office or, of course, the extreme situations of rape. We think about it in those terms, but we don't actually think about it in terms of how it impacts men. So whether you're talking about sexual harassment, rape, uh, hair discrimination, for almost every form of discrimination and harassment or whatnot we can think of, we have to learn to see things from a black male perspective. And we have to become litigious about how we respond to this. That's what gets it on the record. We have to become litigious. We have to be able to start taking people to court based on, on how they treat us because our experiences are relevant and those experiences need to be put on the books and those altered, you know, those alterations and how we define these discriminations against black men needs to be put on the front table. Um, oh man, uh, big ups to you, uh, Mr. Edward. Appreciate that support, sir. Thank you. Um, also Aquateki, thank you. Shout outs to you. Appreciate that. Um, uh, nameless protagonist. Uh, appreciate that support as well. Says salute to you, doctor. I work in the government now, and the deal with the hair is, and and deal with the hair issue. My having a religious appropriation was the only thing that helped me. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. You know, I've I've actually consulted on court cases about black men and hair, and yet most people don't associate our experiences with anything relevant to the issue. All right. Uh, so moving on. Next thing up, university launches investigation after a black professor was asked by campus security to prove she lived in her own, own house. Uh, pictured on the left, Danielle Morgan, black assistant professor at Santa Clara University, was dancing in her room on Saturday morning when she said she was interrupted by a knock on the door. Outside stood her brother, Carlos Fuentes, black male with long locks, who was visiting her on campus after eight months of being apart due to the pandemic. Beside him stood a campus police officer who followed him back to his sister's home. Uh, he says, um, uh, or Morgan says, I'm so sorry about this. Um, uh, Morgan said, Fuentes told her, they're demanding you come out and vouch for me, right? So basically uh, her brother comes to visit her uh, at in her home, uh, it appears on campus and is treated this way. And this is nothing new. This is nothing we're in, unfamiliar with, right? But this is definitely something that uh, I wanna point out. Uh, I also uh, spent some time in Santa Clara, went to high school there for a couple of years. Uh, so it's not surprising to see this kind of case, but it is nonetheless par for the course, right? Um, and you can you can factor in different types of discrimination going on there, right? Also, looking at this, uh, Elmer Daniels walks to freedom today after Delaware Attorney General dismissed the 1980 indictment against him, served 39 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Elmer was 18 years old when he went in. Yesterday was his 57th birthday. So again, black men exonerated. Uh, for crimes they didn't commit. This goes on on almost the daily. Uh, the majority of, of exonerated um, uh, felons are actually innocent black men. And, they're, and we're finding this out more and more every day, especially as we look at the evidence, particularly DNA evidence that tends to work in their favor. So you can see how this tends to go. Uh, but shout out to Elmer. I hope all is well with him uh, and other black men in his situation. And for those who are still incarcerated, but innocent, uh, we, we, our love out to you. 
Uh, hopefully we can find ways to exonerate you soon enough because we don't know how many black men are locked up uh, behind uh, false information, uh, false accountability, so on and so forth. And that can that can happen in terms of uh, people bearing false witness as victims. It can happen with corrupt police officers. Nevertheless, black men find themselves uh, on the outs when it comes to their overall well-being, uh, particularly uh, in regard to incarceration. Right. This one I wanted to shout out. Uh, and this is actually there's a couple of that I want to shout out in the next couple of pieces in terms of black men who have done precisely what we're accused of not doing. And that is actually being heroes. Uh, shout out to Green Gorilla in the chat. Uh, see you out there. Um, support his channel if you haven't already. He's dropped some fire videos very recently. One of his last ones is absolutely off the chain. Uh, go support the brother's channel uh, because he's, he's ridiculous. He's on point. Uh, so check him out. Right. Green Gorilla on YouTube. All right. So this piece, as you can see, two young men pull Marion resident from burning home. Sunday, June 21st, a home in the 3000th block of South Adams in Marion caught fire while a resident was uh, while a resident slept on his living room couch. Luckily, Marcus Harvey and Trey Jones were driving down the street when they both noticed the smoke. Marcus told Channel 27 that he first thought someone was burning some trees behind the house. We're going to assume burning trees means anyway, I won't go there. All right. Um, but Trey realized it was the house itself that was on fire. When the two stopped, the crowd had already congregated outside the home. Marcus and Trey asked the crowd of people what was going on. They were told the house was on fire and that a man was still somewhere inside, placing their own lives in danger. The pair knew they had to jump into action. The two managed to kick the door down, find the man who was still lying on the couch and pull him from the home. The man was transferred to Marion General Hospital to be uh, checked for injuries. So shout out to these two brothers who did what black men have never stopped doing. Uh, at the end of the day, look, in, in the society we live in, boys are socialized into roles of heroism, particularly, um, you know, boys that, uh, and we can argue about the, the, the kind of biochemical and physiological aspects of this in terms of uh, greater testosterone levels at, you know, risk risky behavior on behalf of males. But at the end of the day, sacrifice is part and parcel to the very definition of manhood. And we do it often. And yet the stereotypes of us, of us not doing it all are so prevalent that even when it happens, people dismiss it and will tell you straight out, black men don't do X, Y, and Z. And it's absolutely ridiculous. So, uh, you know, we need to salute out when this happens. This is uh, something I started last year. This is reminiscent of the concept of the sacred, sacred black masculine, right? Just black men being men, doing what we do. And much of the time that has to do with sacrificing for others, protecting others, even though much of that protection is villainized in the popular imagination. I'm going to make sure I mention brothers who are definitely doing that. And of course, I shout out the brothers that are doing everyday acts of heroism, which really are supporting our families, supporting our loved ones, taking care of ourselves, taking care of the ones we love. Those are everyday acts of heroism. And much of the time, those things get ignored. So shout out to you brothers out there that are doing what you got to do to take care of your families, take care of yourselves, take care of those you care for. Make sure you support other brothers, look out for them, check up on them, especially during this kind of quarantine time period. Make sure people are all right, because as I told y'all before, you know, brothers are, are going through all kinds of stuff. And often many of us don't know until it's too late especially if we're talking about suicide, like I mentioned in my last show. So shout out to all of y'all. Keep it pushing, right? Um, next up, black firefighter dies after saving three drowning girls, right? Um, his 10-year-old daughter was one of the last people to see him before he died. At around 9 p.m. Friday night, off-duty firefighter Savad Johnson 
helped rescue three girls who were drowning in a river near Michigan's Belle Isle. When Johnson noticed the disturbance, he spun into action, uh, giving his phone and keys to his daughter Hayden, 10 years old, so that he could provide assistance. Although the girls were returned safely back to their homes, Johnson was not as fortunate. When Hayden noticed the girls were safely brought back to shore, she called 911 after she was una unable to find her father. Detroit's fire and police departments recovered his body from the river on Saturday afternoon near the Detroit Yacht Club, and he was pronounced dead at the hospital uh, shortly afterward. Department Fire Commissioner Dave Fornell said, according to WDIV and NBC Detroit News affiliate, Johnson might have gotten weighted down and buried underwater by a rip current. The 48-year-old Detroit native served as a firefighter for more than 26 years. He had a long history with the fire department as a second-generation firefighter following his father and his brother's footsteps. For real. This kind of thing goes on every day. We just don't get to see the stories. But shout out to this brother here, Savad Johnson, sacrificed his life to take care of others, strangers he didn't even know, and comes from two generations, right? Comes the second generation firefighter. Uh, shout out to my god brother, Thomas Waller, firefighter who does the same kinds of things, put themselves in the, in the harm's way to sacrifice for others, and often unsung, right? And it's too bad this brother had to lose his life, but uh, shout out to him. And uh, shout outs to uh, brothers like, uh, you know, Officer Faulkner, who does very similar things. As he says in the chat, <laughs> not all heroes wear capes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so um, let's see. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Hold on. All right. And so. Uh, I said we would jump into a couple of different things, um, so I will do so. I want to get some of this up before I uh, jump into the black male agenda and, of course, deal with the primary subject. So real quick, I'll put this up. So the black male agenda we had, uh, we talked a little bit about last week. This is something I want black men to use, particularly as the discussions um, come in around politics. Uh, I think I may have missed a caller. I apologize if I had. Um, call back in if you get a chance to. Number um, is 310-928-7733. Uh, that's 310-928-7733. Right now, I'm just going over some basics before we really jump in. But uh, right here, the blackmail agenda we talked about, uh, the first bullet point was mandatory DNA testing at birth to stem uh, paternity fraud, which we found to be in the United States up to 32%. Uh, in other places like Jamaica and Nigeria, we found the st uh, statistics to be fairly high as well. I think J uh, Nigeria might be around 30% 30 to 36, somewhere in that range, if I remember correctly. And one testing center in Jamaica reported that 70% of its tests came back. Now that's not to say that 70% of births in Jamaica are a result of paternity fraud, but it is to say one testing center found up to 70% of its results to suggest paternity fraud. So the numbers are, are, are extremely high when it comes to that. Um, and so that was why we talk about mandatory DNA testing at birth. Uh, family court reform, whether you're talking about alimony, child support, the divorce proceedings uh, in general tend to not slant in the favor of men. So, again, uh, something that black men would find an important political bullet point uh, that we even have the discussion. 
right? Single sex education. This is one uh, contributed by uh, one BGS, right? Who is in the chat. Uh, shout outs to him. If you haven't watched uh, any of his recent videos, you're missing out. He's been doing some incredible work lately on the rates of single motherhood in different countries and exploring some of the background and the context for that and how that relates to America. So definitely check out uh, most particularly some of the recent ones by BGS um, uh, if you haven't, right? But he talks about the value of single sex education and there is data to support the notion that males do better under male teachers, females do better under female teachers, um, and we can go from there, all right? Okay, uh, so the next one up is homelessness. And as I pointed out before, uh, the black homeless population in any given city is usually predominantly male. In some of the major cities, it can get up to 80 and 90% of that black homeless population that are male, right? Uh, but as of a few months ago, again, before COVID, half of America's homelessness was black, half of it, right? We don't, the, the rates after COVID, I'm still waiting to see. But if that's the case before COVID, you can imagine what it is. And much of that has to do with the fact that many black men are being released from prison and have no place to go. So uh, this is how it impacts them. Uh, next up, employment. As I pointed out earlier, massive unemployment for black men, again, before COVID. So we can understand what is likely happening with black men uh, afterwards or during, I should say. Um, criminal sentence, sentencing reform, uh, having to stem the tide of unfair incarceration. This has to do with black men being sentenced no differently from other groups who are uh, sentenced. And we find that for the same crimes, black men are often hyper sentenced, right? Even if it's their first offense. Also um, IPV policy reform, intimate partner violence, right? And that basically means that uh, the assumption of guilt on behalf of black men simply at the accusation often levied without evidence is something that needs to be critically reexamined. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Go, 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 to, go to Green Gorilla's channel and listen to him talk about his own experiences having been falsely accused of intimate partner violence and suffering from what has transpired since then. If, you don't, if you're not familiar, go back through some of his older videos. Um, he's still relatively new on YouTube. Shouldn't be difficult to find. All right. Um, so uh, anyway, let me. So this, these were contributed by one Adam Ibmore. Shout out to Adam. Uh, this is a Facebook friend. Uh, he contributed a number of bullet points. I only took about eight to put up for consideration in this early stage of this developing blackmail agenda. First of which being an automatic 50-50 custody, even in cases of IPV, she must prove he was violent towards the children. We know 90% of, of abused children are abused by women. So the argument, again, this is part, this would go under uh, uh, family court reform, automatic 50-50 custody, abolishing the Duluth model. Right. The Duluth model is, this, is the psychological model put forth that made the argument that men were inherently guilty and responsible uh, for any for the most part, any form of intimate partner violence uh, simply on the basis of patriarchy. Right. And this uh, concept uh, was found to be faulty uh, very early on. If you're not familiar, check out Dr. Tommy Curry's book, um, uh, The Man Not. And he goes into detail as to the inherent problems of the Duluth model. But what nobody talks about as well is how the Duluth model not only criminalized bl men, but hyper-criminalized black men, right, to an unprecedented degree. So please check that out if you're not familiar. Um, definitely some important things to get out of this, right? 292 people watching. Please like, share, and subscribe. Please support, support the channel um, as we go along here. Hold on. Let me kind of get some things 
set here. Bear with me. All right. Okay. So even though my son and I are just two bachelors uh, in this house, he's going to school in his room um, and I'm teaching in my office. Uh, we still could use uh, whatever support we can get. This is an interesting time because they got he, he's taking a PE class from home. And what they have him doing is running circles in his room. It's it's strange. But this is these are the times we're in. It's ridiculous. Um, anyway, um, Roe, if you're asking about the book title I just gave out, it was Dr. Tommy Curry's The Man Not. The Man Not. M-A-N-N-O-T. Next up in terms of the blackmail agenda is reinstituting at-fault at fault divorce standards, right? This is one way of kind of eliminating arbitrary divorce, uh, which disproportionately impacts men, uh, particularly on a financial level. And when you're talking about a population that's already uh, relatively challenged in terms of income and wealth, this is highly problematic, right? For the most part, black folk have very little wealth. Wealth is primarily uh, handed down from family to family. We tend to have very little handed down wealth uh, or inherited uh, inherited wealth. Uh, and that is exacerbated by, um, you know, no fault divorce. Uh, 80% of divorces are initiated by women. Second and third marriages, are the percentages of divorce are even higher. Uh, this again, impacts men. So if you talk about income as a way of, you know, trying to, you know, redetermine uh, black men's standing, if you're over $100,000, you're already in the top 9% of all men these are 2016 numbers, but you're in the top 9% of all men and you're in the top 3% of all black men, right? So that, that should tell you where we are, right? 40% of black America, um, actually, I think it might be around, uh, was it 60% is under 21,000 a year? Um, no, I think it's 40% under 21,000 a year. And then when you get to um, the 40,000 range, we're up much higher to 60. So, and that's by family before taxes, right? So we are we are struggling. Now, again, these numbers are pre-COVID, right? We don't know what the COVID numbers are, but when you talk about something uh, that may seem arbitrary like divorce, that can become a huge issue uh, in terms of what Black men experience. So reinstituting at-fault divorce standards as a way of challenging people to marry for uh, far more strategic reasons, but do so with a, a conscience, so to speak or at least an awareness of how uh, the divorce will not benefit you financially just because. All right, number four, legally recognizing the withholding of sex as a form of sexual abuse, uh, such, as, as a, such as a man withholding his own money as is a financial abuse. And this is interesting when you talk about marriage because there are real repercussions for having sex outside of marriage. But if there's a withholding of sex within the marriage, men usually have very little options, right? Very few options to deal with the issue in other ways, right? All right, uh, number five, um, giving men the legal window and right to a financial abortion. I've been talking about this for the last few years. Basically what this would mean is that upon finding out that a woman is pregnant, a man would have the option to opt out within the first several months. And there's debate about which months uh, that can be. And I think men are open to having that debate, but it's nonetheless important. It's nonetheless important because when you talk about financial abortion, excuse me, I'm wrapping my mic up a little bit. What we're really talking about are ways that men can have some form of protection, 
And if you're not familiar, look on my channel for a video uh, from one Tanaya Siam on my page. Um, and she does an excellent breakdown of the limited rights men have when it comes to women's reproductive, reproductive options, right? She has a wide variety of birth control options, at least um, 30 different options in five major forms that don't even include abortion. And men are still dealing with condoms, the pullout method and abstinence, right? So this would be actually one of the, the a policy that would provide some protection for men who don't want to have a child. Right. And don't have as many options as it because women have options before, during and after the sex act. And they're relatively inexpensive options. Men have very few, even if they use condoms, condoms break, you know, all kinds of things can happen. And yes, you can even have women that are not being honest about their reproductive standing. So this would provide men with the option to be able to opt out from a family he may not necessarily want. Uh, and just because she wants it should not have to offset the next 18 years of his life. There should be options that provide some modicum of protection for men, as there are plenty of options that provide protection for women. Uh, forcing number six, forcing all rape allegations to maintain the same standards of proof as a homicide case. Absolutely. Right now in this Me Too cancel culture, we have an accusation in the court of public opinion is often enough for you to lose your life. And yet we don't find that people take that seriously. All right. Um, let's see. Number seven, instituting a child support value system where goods, services, time spent with a child is calculated and valued at a dollar amount. Any remaining deficit is paid in cash. Right. I think that one speaks for itself. Pretty straightforward. Um, uh, number eight, enacting a right to lifestyle law for men, just as women are entitled to the life she's accustomed to. Men are likewise entitled to the same right. Thus, any judgment or, or consent determination. Uh, maid must ensure that the husband can enjoy the same privileges and lifestyle enjoyed before or during the marriage, whichever costs more to maintain. So just providing some degree of equity when it comes to divorce. If you're going to do it on one side, not why not the other? So just a couple of options to consider. Uh, for those of you interested in adding more, you can definitely do so. You can put it in the chat, put your ideas there, or better yet, you can send them to me at my website, www.t hassanjohnson.com and you can uh, you can email me through the website and send me your, su your suggestions but again these are there for us to use as talking points to really understand uh, and shape in the public uh, a sensibility of what black men's specific issues are and these are just beginning I'm not at all suggesting that they're exhaustive but it's merely to begin the dialogue about what men need that may not be covered in our discussions about what black folk need right? Because often those are, again, uh, tilted toward women's issues, but not necessarily taking into account what black men themselves need, right? And it's interesting from there. Well, I, I don't want to get off on that tangent. That might be another show. Uh, but anyway, I was, we'll talk later about uh, the impact of uh, number four, withholding sex as a form of sexual abuse. There are definitely some ramifications to that that I think are important for public discussion. All right couple of items uh, that lead us to the major subject of the day. As you all can see here, I can't breathe. Georgia man dies in custody after hours of begging for help. Um, Dwayne, appreciate that support, sir. Uh, yes, I can't breathe. Georgia man dies in custody after hours of begging for help. Surveillance video from Cobb County Jail shows Kevil Wingo collapsing multiple times as nurses and deputies ignore his cries for help. This is Cobb County, Georgia. 
An 11 Alive reveal investigation has uncovered a video of a man detained by Cobb County Sheriff's Office who was repeatedly heard by staff screaming that he couldn't breathe while deputies and medical personnel watched him slowly die. Right? Happened in September 2019, but details of his death were concealed for nine months until the sheriff's office uh, concluded its internal affairs investigation this past June. The man who died in custody is Kevin Wingo, 36-year-old Atlanta resident, arrested for drug possession and booked into the Cobb County Detention Center. And before I hear haters say, well, because it's a drug conviction, we should ignore this, or because he, he had a possession on him, that's not a capital offense, right? Especially before it hits a court. Black men should not, should not be subject to death for things that other people don't have to die for, right? But yet another case of our, our, our arbitrary deaths, right? But this is the big one in the recent news, one Jacob Blake, right? It's the one we've all been hearing about. And of course, there's been a major shift in the news today about what happened with Jacob Blake, or really the protest that came about afterwards. I'll get to that in a moment. But one Jacob Blake, 29 years old, paralyzed from the waist down and has eight holes in his body, claims his father after being shot um, uh, in back by Wisconsin cops in front of his three sons, um, as new footage shows him brawling with police before the shooting. Father of Jacob Blake says 29-year-old is paralyzed from the waist down, said Blake now has eight holes in his body. Uh, this is in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Doctors do not know if the paralysis will be permanent, his father says. Blake is now in stable condition uh, in the hospital after undergoing surgery. Video police shooting Blake apparently in the back as he leaned into his SUV while his three children sat in the vehicle, circulated widely on social media. Second cell phone video that emerged later appeared to show Blake wrestling with the officers. Uh, anger over shooting spilled into the streets of Kenosha for a second night Monday with police firing tear gas at hundreds of protesters defying a curfew. Right, and here's some other pictures that uh, we can see of one Blake. Darius, appreciate that support. Um, Professor Rashid, good to see you, sir. Um, well, absolutely, right? This, this is the kind of trauma that we're seeing. Um, somebody said my screen. Is my screen a problem? Uh, let me know if there's something going on with the screen because um, I can't tell at this juncture. So if there's something happening and you guys can't see me, definitely let me know. Okay. Okay. Art says you see it now. Okay. I'm not sure what the problem was, but uh, I hope I, we didn't miss out on too much. All right. Of course, at the protest, we have a whole nother issue, right? Illinois' teen Kyle Rittenhouse charged in... Um, uh, and fatal shooting of two Kenosha protesters. 17-year-old Illinois man has been charged in the shooting death of two protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, late Tuesday. Kyle has been charged with first-degree intentional homicide. Um, right? He was part of a group of armed men at the scene. We have been identifying them as local militia. Uh, he hails from Antioch, Illinois, about 12 miles away across state lines. Dramatic video and images from the Wisconsin City show an armed man, allegedly written house, walking down the street with protesters in pursuit after one man was shot in the head. The gunman stumbles and is attacked by protesters, then opens fire and strikes two more people. The shooting came on the third night of unrest in the city of 100,000 in the wake of Jacob Blake's shooting by police on Sunday. And you can see here 
some of the images that came from that. Apparently, at a particular point, um, oh man, uh, what is this here for? Sorry. Uh, at a particular point, the uh, protesters uh, tackled him, right? So he was actually uh, tackled to the ground at a specific point, but not before two people got shot, right? Thriller, appreciate that cash app support, right? So this is what we're dealing with, right? These are the kind of issues that black men are grappling with, uh, where again, um, our deaths are happening, uh, whether or not they get reported is a whole different issue. We know black men are often killed by police at a number of two to 300 per year. Those are at least the ones reported that we're familiar with. Um, and we know that black women tend to deal with these issues between about nine and 13 per year. So this is definitely an issue that black men face. And yet I've yet to see any major policy come out that benefits black men and helps prevent these things from occurring, right? But our deaths still serve other people's political agendas. And one of the things that's happening now is we're seeing the advancement of a very particular type of political coup um, where black feminists are trying to get black America to turn out for Joe Biden uh, because Kamala Harris is on the ticket. And yet again, if we look at this in terms of a black male agenda, we can see that neither Biden or Harris has a great record when it comes to dealing with black men, especially when you're talking about the hyper incarceration of black men that Biden helped facilitate. And in her turn as attorney general in San Francisco, we look at what Harris has done with black men from high incarceration rates to using black male uh, prisoners to put out fires for pennies on the dollar. So these kind of things impact us. And yet we're told that we need to be quiet. We need to take it. We need to be happy about it and we need to go ahead and allow this to happen because, again, we got to get Trump out of office. Um, it's not necessarily that I don't think we don't have to get him out of office. It's just simply that every four years we hear the same logic. Be quiet. Just vote. Uh, and we got to get this, whoever the Republican is, insert name here, out of office. But when we really look at it for black men, when the Democrats themselves are participating in hyper incarceration, it's time to ask new questions. It's time to push a black political agenda. And it's time to force people to uh, respect the fact that we will not vote if this agenda is not met. We will not participate in any great numbers. Uh, and we will not provide lip service to people who have no problem incarcerating black men, but then not being willing to even entertain the idea of a black male agenda uh, to court our votes. Right. So this needs to be a discussion that needs to happen and it needs to start. Uh, as soon as possible. So yet again, I'm posting, you know, the blackmail talking points, the blackmail agenda as something to generate dialogue about black men's issues, you know, but going back to what we're seeing here, uh, again, more black men's deaths. Um, and yet, who advocates for us? Right? That becomes the question I ask, who advocates for us uh, on terms that actually apply to us? Well, uh, that's one of the questions that uh, I think we black men themselves, particularly on YouTube, have been asking and on social media, asking and debating amongst one another. Uh, chemistry, appreciate that support um, about who actually advocates for us. Now, I came across three tweets that I thought were interesting. They were being sent to me and put on my page, but it kind of reflected in a particular way the way in which black men are kind of seen. Uh, in some respects. And again, I'm, I, I, I've posited the concept of Neo COINTELPRO. These may or may not be actual people. I have no idea. 
Nevertheless, these are kind of the statements that we're seeing being propagated and retweeted out over and over again, right? Sometimes I'm seeing these images that are supporting the deaths of black men, um, images talking about um, not understanding the role of fathers and families um, or instigating fights between men. And this is something Adam Immore uh, has been deal doing some research on uh, on Facebook, trying to examine to what extent uh, proxy violence, right, in terms of black men being instigated into conflicts with other black men, even to the extent of homicide, is actually initiated uh, by uh, some of the kinds of people we're seeing here, black women who are engaged in this kind of behavior. And why am I bringing this up? Well, we're talking about CompuServe's. We're talking about black men and their socially expected roles to serve in silence other people's interests, even beyond their own deaths. Right? And in that, you develop a culture after a few decades of black men not being in a position to sustain families in the way they may have been able to prior to the 1970s. Um, you, you, reach a, you develop a culture where black men are looked down upon, denounced, and seen as a problem seen as somebody who is not able to participate, not able to provide anything of use, this becomes part and parcel to what's expected. Now, I wanna share a clip that, uh, that a good brother of mine sent me um, from the Republican National Convention. And it has to do with a, a clip from Michael Steele. And he made some very interesting statements about um, black men that I thought uh, were um, worthy to share. Uh, so hopefully uh, we can get the sound going. I think, um, here we go, share the audio. I think hopefully this should be pretty clear cut, but uh, let me cue it up a bit. Bear with me, I'm always trying to um, balance this out and you never quite know how these things are going to play out. So hopefully this works. Um, okay, I don't want to show the whole thing. I'm really not interested in doing that, but I'm going to show a portion that has to do with, um, my goodness. I apologize. Um, just trying to get the technical up uh, before my Inner Light crew has to go. For those of you on Inner Light, we will still be broadcasting on YouTube. Um, so uh, you can transfer over if we have to go off air on Inner Light. Okay, so let me try and get this going. There we go. Let's try it from here. This is my, uh, again, Michael Steele talking eventually about black men and black women how what policy are you are you looking to put on the table you you can talk about you know uh, you know opportunity zones and things like that but you should know also that the black community has other things in the economic piece in in mind uh, they want to know seriously how you're going to approach policing they want to know seriously how you're going to approach redlining that would have been a nice topic to talk about. The, the gentrification of black neighborhoods, for example. Um, what do you talk about that? How, how do you help a family, a black family that's been in a neighborhood from set for 70 years, stay there? So then you begin to open up the avenues in which you can have that conversation, which is what we tried to do 10 years ago 
which unfortunately I think, uh, given the politics of trying to segment the black vote, give us black men because black men like the whole machismo thing, um, that works until they talk to the black female in their household who reminds them exactly how they're going to vote. That is deep. Okay. All right. Interesting. This is how we are seen. All right. We're a joke. All right. If you didn't understand what a conky surf was prior to that, that's what it is. All right. You have no backbone. You have no voice. You have no worldview of note. You are a body in service. Right? And the idea here is that you are in service to the gynarchy, meaning that you are in service to the population of the community that is in a position of authority. Whether you're talking about uh, in terms of businesses, entrepreneurship, whether you're talking about the church, whether you're talking about um, family leadership. In each of these instances, right, we're looking at positions that black men find themselves in that are not in positions of leadership. Right. Black men are actually found in positions of subservience, mainly because of the social and economic underdevelopment initiated by our government in the last few decades. Whether we're talking about employment, whether we're talking about access to state resources, uh, uh, whether we're talking about home ownership, whether we're talking about political leadership. I talked about in a couple of shows ago, the rates of electoral officials that are coming out and how they are overwhelmingly female, primarily because of education, right? K through 12, through college, uh, what we're finding is that, of course, black women are, you know, the most uh, enrolled in higher education demographic in the country. That said, um, the road to electoral representation is paved by degrees. So, so you find many black men not being able to represent themselves in comparable numbers, mainly because of that. So that said, you know, we're seeing this position of black men being further and further underdeveloped as time continues on. So much so that we are the bane and the joke of, in the conversation, uh, as we just saw with one Michael Steele, right? In that vein, in terms of how you know political figures look at us, we are a vote. And we tend to vote Democrat, second only to black women, even though nobody wants to talk about voter dis disenfranchisement when it comes to black men and incarceration and the ways in which we're excluded from the voter rolls because of these various types of charges that we've navigated. But we still vote in second highest numbers, Democrat, and yet that's dismissed. As a matter of fact, when Trump was elected, I actually saw people making posts about how his election was black men's fault, even though no other group voted as high uh, for you know Democrats or for Hillary Clinton at that time, uh, for black nobody voted higher than black men except for black women, right? And there was never a question raised as to whether or not Hillary Clinton actually represented the interests of black men because we've yet to have a conversation about what constitutes the interests of black men. We've not had that conversation yet. Uh, so this becomes extremely important when the world sees black men as having no standing, no voice of its own. Our voices are subsumed in uh, the conversations being held right now in support of Biden and Harris. Our votes are assumed. Our interests are assumed. And if you choose to vote conservative, of course, you're, you're called a Tom and all these other kinds of things. I voted, personally, I voted green. I find it ironic, um, to me anyway. Uh, Bashanti, appreciate that support. 
how quickly, you know, people will turn around and call me a misogynist because I advocate for black men. But I voted for Cynthia McKinney in 2008 and I voted for Jill Stein at different points. My issues are not about uh, who's popular. It's not even really about what people look like. My issues are what how is this going to impact black men? Are there going to be any kind of policy reforms that actually prioritize the needs of black men? I think at one particular point, Jill Stein's vice presidential candidate uh, was a black male. So that was definitely something I was interested in supporting. But again, that's not just on the basis of him being black. I didn't vote for Obama because he was black. I didn't see a connection. And every time I heard him speak to black men, it was in a very. Uh, it was it was very um, dismissive in one vein, um, very um, condescending in another. It was really this kind of pound cake, you know, Bill Cosby speech. Black men need to pull their pants up. Black men need to be better fathers. No review of the data that actually shows that black men are the better fathers, that spend the most amount of time with their children. None of that. He just spoke in that kind of manner and we received it and everybody else just kind of nodded because, you know, all he really did is touch the the stereotypical talking points for black men. That's all he primarily did. And that is more than acceptable for a lot of people, right? So unfortunately, this is the kind of thing that we're grappling with, you know? And so right now, I'm really pushing for us to actually have a dialogue about a black male agenda, because I think in the last 40 to 50 years, one of the things we've been grappling with, most recently since the late 80s, we've been grappling with intersectionality. I've had some conversations on there. Go back to my show a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Tommy Curry, where he gives a paper that you know, unquestionably breaks down the origins of intersectionality in regard to how it's treated black men, right? If you look at early internet intersectionality theory, late 1980s with one Kimberly Crenshaw, the idea posited that black men and women both suffered more than any other group uh, on the basis of race, class, sex, and gender. But when it came to black men, they were privileged on the basis of gender, right? They were privileged and black women were oppressed. So black women are oppressed across the spectrum. Black men were oppressed in every spe- in every area of the spectrum, except for one where they were privileged, even though the data, especially if you look at Jim Sedanius's work, actually showed that we were actually hyper oppressed on the basis of being both black and male. Right. And so Dr. Curry's research went in into what he called subculture of violence theory, where he noticed that what black feminists did is they pulled from a body of research, racist scholarship to provide an understanding and a perspective on black men without even challenging it. They just they just assumed it, put it in their argument wholesale, didn't critically analyze it and used it to justify ignoring black men in terms of intersectionality theory. I try to take it in another direction. What I look at as having happened since the 1970s is what I call an inverted intersectionality. Now, this predates formal intersectionality, but in response to the civil rights movement, what I've noticed happening more often than not is the way in which race, class, gender, sexuality, education, disability, all these different things were actually used against black men in a very interesting kind of way. Now, this is something that I've said before, but I didn't go into a whole lot of detail. And I put up a video by one Dr. Bobby Wright. You can find Bobby Wright's videos on YouTube. Um, Brother passed away a while ago. You can't find a whole lot of lectures, but he's a powerful brother. You can find his works, his books. Um, Very interesting. But mind is like a steel trap and and speaks at 100 miles an hour because he was absolutely brilliant. And one of the things he talked about, and I played his video on this show. uh, Dar, appreciate that support. Um, uh, one of the things that Bobby Wright, Dr. Bobby Wright talked about 
was the way in which uh, the state responded to the civil rights movement. And this is something Valdez just talked about an hour ago. He might still be on, I'm not sure, but he did say his current video he's gonna put on his website for free. I implore you to check that video, uh, video out. He's actually responding to a panel he was on uh, where black women were talking about feminism and he does some excellent work there bringing up some issues in regard to um, you know the advancement of black feminism at the expense of black men, right? Anyway. Dr. Bobby Wright talks about the response to the civil rights movement. And he says that by the time you get to the 1970s, he said they wiped us out. He said, and he's saying this in the early 1980s. And he said, this is why we don't talk about the 70s at that time. He said, we talk about the 60s, but we ignore the 70s. He said, the reason we ignore the 70s is because the 70s is when they came back out and wiped us out, right? He said, in terms of black women, feminists came in and said, this is, not, this is a women's struggle, not a racial struggle. And he said, in his words, they took all our women. Right. Valdez's point in his last show is dead on where he kind of elucidates on that. He, he, he explains how that kind of works. And of course, that, that doesn't mean all women. That's, we need to stop this mess. But overarchingly, it is hard in 2020 to find a woman who does not have feminist talking points, whether she's ever actually read a black feminist or not. The point of the matter is feminism has seeped so much into the mainstream that you have people participating in it that don't even know what it is. It's almost like a religious kind of referencing to, you know, to deferring to black women, where even if it's at the expense of black men. Right. And so what Dr. Bobby Wright was saying is that you have to trace this as to a response to the late 1960s. Right. So you had through Gloria Steinem, Michelle Wallace, a couple of people Valdez was pointing out and a number of others. They, uh, this kind of funded, right, state funded kind of feminism put on widespread platform. And we see with black feminism, that state funding applied in regard to uh, everything from popular mainstream media in the early 1980s uh, to film, right, to literature. You started to see these platforms like Oprah's that began to mainstream feminism amongst black women, because at the time, the only place, and it's still true, the only place, you, you know, black women are introduced formally to feminism is through higher education, right? But through works like Oprah and others, they were able to mainstream it. So the talking points became public, even if you never stepped foot in a college classroom. And now it's almost religious. To advocate for women, it, it, it's just something that has to be done. No qualifications, no reflection, no analysis. If the if the statement is made, everybody be, everybody gets quiet because it's an accepted norm. But if you advocate for boys, there's a problem, right? So when we saw Obama put forth my brother's keeper uh, program, immediately I had feminists asking me to sign a petition to open it up to women and girls, even if girls weren't suffering from the same issues to anywhere near the same degree. And there was a White House Council on women and girls. It didn't matter. It had to advocate for girls simply because you can't have something for boys without girls. And as Valdez pointed out, and he's right, you can have something for girls and not have it for boys. And you will be shamed if you challenge that. If there's a new program developed for girls and you ask the women who are the most educated in the community, most employed, most consistently employed, you ask them why there's nothing for boys, you're shamed. But if you do something for boys, the question comes up, why didn't you also do it for girls? I've had this happen at conferences too. If I present a paper on men or males, that's not good enough. The question immediately comes up, why didn't you study black women and girls? And these will come from male and female scholars. It doesn't matter, right? Even though the data, if, I'm, if my research interest is black males, that doesn't matter. 
I have to also simultaneously do research on black women. And yet there'll be 10 times, and I'm not joking about this. I go to conferences and I count the number of presentations. There are 10 times as many projects and presentations and panels on women and girls at black studies conferences that I've attended in the last five years, 10 times as many than there are in, uh, for men and boys, right? Again, there's a religious kind of uh, prioritization of women and girls. And then you'll even hear, if you try to set up a panel for men and boys, well, this needs to be diverse. You can't have this panel unless you have women represented. And yet you will see in those in the many of those programs for women and girls, there is no male represented, no, no interest in males represented. And now this is happening in the academy. So what's happening out in the mainstream world, right? So anyway, going back to Dr. Bobby Wright. So he points this out. And he says, the feminists came and took our women. And then he said, the LGBTs came and told our gay people that, you know, our LGBT, that the struggle wasn't about race. It was about sexuality. And he's and he's joking in the way he's delivering this, but he's dead serious about what actually took place in the 70s in terms to, of, of protest and political ideology, right? He said, they took our gays, right? Then he kind of went in talking about Marxists and he kind of talked about the intellectual elite. And, and really what he was pointing out is the different ways that these different camps appropriated black struggle, de-emphasized race and hyper-emphasized other areas that split the civil rights movement. Now I wanna say here, whether you're talking about the civil rights movement or the black power movement, the black family was at the foundation of both. And this is something you, you, very few people actually say out loud. The black family in the early in the mid 20th century, most particularly by the time you get to the late 1960s, is probably the most dangerous family in the in the world. And the reason I say that is that this time period, you know, you had a, a, a growing global media system. Unprecedented in human history, over decades, an expanding global media system. And at one particular point during the Cold War, right, where the United States and the whole question of the USSR, who was going to be the major impactor of the world, who was going to set the standard for the family, and of course, the precepts of the country, which, one, which system works best. One of the Achilles heels America had was black folk, right? And when you started to see old women getting hosed and attacked by dogs in the South, you know, there was a moral high ground that we developed at that particular point. And then when the statistics and the data and the stories got out about how we were treated in different ways, highly impactful. The response was incredibly strategic, most particularly by the U.S. government. We started talking about affirmative action. One of the things we saw, of course, is the double minority status, where women counted for twice because they were both women and they were black. Now, this came about in many ways because white women, once they declared themselves a minority, they created a whole new category on the basis of sex. And since then have become the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action policy, white women, which meant that as long as they continued to marry, they were actually benefiting from resources that were supposed to go to the black community on top of what they already had. And of course, what their husbands earned. Right. So the, the white family was actually able to progress based on affirmative action policy. And yet for us. There was no such benefit and black men found themselves on the outs even more. But with that, black women having access to state resources black men didn't have, you also saw a developing culture that would take several decades to reach fruition. And in the 80s, we really started to hear it where black men became unnecessary in the minds of many black women. This is state-sponsored 
Black Family Underdevelopment. And it was in response to the impact we had, especially during a critical point in the Cold War, where we had global impact, right? People were listening to us on a, to an unprecedented degree, and that had to stop. And what we did not anticipate was how it would be stopped. And one of the ways it was stopped was, by, was to critically have our voices dismantled from within, Resources in particular, both state and private, became the foundation for us becoming, becoming the vehicle for our own underdevelopment, right? The black family, as I said before, became an arm of white supremacy because we began to fight over resources. And most particularly, many of our black women were told they didn't need us. And that's not hard to do in a poor community. It really isn't. We talk about this in terms of non-government organizations in Africa, for example. You can have a non-governmental organization or an NGO come into a relatively poor space and upset the economics, the economic stability of that space because they offer a resource that the people don't have immediate access to. Well, this is precisely what happened in Black America. When you offer resources that range from um, family court benefits in terms of being the benefit of the doubt, to, of course, the welfare state, to access to college and middle-class life. If you offer those things to the women while you simultaneously incarcerate the men, you not only create a culture of women who don't see a, a utility to having to even deal with men, you also see uh, a, a situation where black men themselves, in order to be considered viable, in order to be considered worthy, um, take on this CompuSurf role that Michael Steele is making fun of. This is not a product of black men's just uh, stupidity. This is a product of strategic policy use. See, I don't get up here on YouTube just to talk about, I, you know, I don't like women or I don't like this or that. No, I'm trying to get us to look at this as an institutionally sanctioned set of behaviors that has been conditioned over decades. So by the time we're having conversations about um, you know, Kamala Harris, we're not really talking about a black woman in office. We're talking about years of proposing that black women don't need black men and that somehow the political advancement of black women can take place without black men. Even with a candidate that has very little to do with the black experience that she's benefiting from by marketing herself in such a manner. And the same thing happened with Obama, but this is nonetheless happening. Excuse me. So I want us to kind of put that in context, because as we talk about this idea of being CompuSurfs and what it means when we talk about the reality of black men serving as CompuSurfs and how we're seen around the world as CompuSurfs, I think it's critically important that we put these things in context. Because, uh, you know, when I talk about inverted sexuality, uh, excuse me, in, uh, inverted intersectionality, what I was saying was how in terms of race, uh, the concept was of uh, blackness began to be used against uh, black men. And by that, I'm, I'm talking specifically about African-American or what we might call ADOS or FBA uh, black men. Concept of race in that sense. And this is the black, the flat blackness I've talked about before, right? Where blackness becomes beneficial to every other group, uh, but you can only be particular when it comes to black women and girls, uh, but you can't be particular when it comes to black men because that's an inherently sexist act, misogynist act. All right, so blackness gets used against black men in a particular way. Um, 
gender, as I talked about with the, you know, the advancement of feminism and the pulling out of black women from the black struggle along gendered lines. This again, gets used against black men because black men overnight become patriarchs. Even though there's no historical evidence that we've ever served that role in any major macro form, it's an assumption that is almost religious at that point, at this point, where people assume that we are the face of patriarchy, even though we hold no power, even within our own community, right? These are the kind of things we're grappling with. Mogul, appreciate that support. I think I missed, I apologize if I missed any of you who supported uh, uh, Bashanti. I think uh, I may have missed you. Thank you for your support. Uh, Cedric, appreciate that support. I apologize if I missed anybody, but please do support the show. Uh, like, share, and subscribe. 386 in the building. Um, please make sure you, you share the video and, and subscribe. I'm fairly close to 10,000 supporters. I definitely would like to um, you know get to that point and beyond. So with your support, um, I would appreciate that because we got to get this critical dialogue out there because I think what we're calling a gender war is a surface level description that belies the years of state-sanctioned institutional underdevelopment that has impacted our behavior patterns, our voting patterns, our organizational patterns, our ideological alignments. You know, all of these things have been shaped by policy as well as by very particular hand-picked people to serve particular roles, right? Hand-picked Negroes, hand-picked agents, so on and so forth. This underdevelopment that we are responding to is much bigger than, you know, what we call the gender war, much bigger. Much of the behavior that black men have been frustrated about in regard to black women is actually a product of policy. And it's been instituted over decades. Now, the question is right now under Trump and in COVID, has that broken down? Will that continue? Will those resources be will continue to be made available to women overwhelmingly and not to men? Will that still offset our dynamic or will black men and women be forced to have a certain level of dialogue out of necessity? That's the question. That's something BGS has been exploring um, and it's something we need to continue to talk about. Silent, appreciate the support. Glad you could catch me live. It's good to have you in here. Um, but that's that's where the conversation needs to go, because at the end of the day, uh, race, gender, class and even education, as well as you know a number of other categories are being used against black men in an inverted kind of way. So, again, when I talked about, um, you know, gender, we t I'm looking at the ways in which feminism turned the very idea of black men into dangerous patriarchs. Right. Uh, in terms of class. Right. And this is, again, something Dr. Bobby Wright talks about. There was an elitism at play where uh, the elitism of certain hand-picked Negroes were used to exemplify what it meant to be a black man. So now you had black men being turned against black men on the basis of whether or not they had advanced degrees or could make six figures, right? So the very idea on class lines of what a black man is, it became under conflict, most particularly to a, taken to a whole nother degree in the 1970s, especially again, as we're dealing with, we were dealing with deindustrialization. So the blue collar labor, that had been the bedrock of black male labor had been radically shook, right, at its foundation. So if you had a couple of, and this is what Dr. Bobby Wright is pointing out, a couple of key professors who are advocating for the decline of race as a tool for activism and study are benefiting, are advancing themselves while everyday black men at the same exact time are having more and more trouble finding work, right? So the very idea of class, even intra 
even within black men, that black men's discussion became contrary to itself. Right. This again underdeveloped and imploded black men having a conversation about their shared experiences, their shared status, and their shared political ideologies, or at least ones they could have, on the basis of an elitism that is used to undermine them. Right. In terms of education, we saw a huge divide in terms of segregation. Even though segregation had formally ended, what we started to see happening uh, in, in urban centers all around the country, right, was who had access to college, who had access to college level uh, entry. You know, I tell people all the time, when I was in high school, my high school counselor told us that going to De Anza Community College was the same exact thing as going to Harvard. And that man sent at least an entire generation of black men and Hispanic men to the local community college, many of whom never made it out. Did anywhere from one to five years without a degree in too many instances. Right. He did not work in any way to send men, black men in particular, to any kind of four year college. So what we're seeing is this kind of divide in the 1970s and 80s in some respects that that in many ways pushed black men out of the running in terms of education. And much of that had to do with where they were, where they lived, what types of schools they were able to attend. And if you went to a public school in a poor area, the chance to go to college. Right. Uh, further diminished. And this is one of the ways that uh, the 70s worked against us, right? And, and of course, the 80s and beyond. Uh, he talked about the LGBT thing you mentioned, but another angle we don't talk about is disability, especially in relation to uh, education. So when you start talking about like ADHD diagnoses and things of that nature, the ways in which those types of diagnoses were used to rationalize sending scores of Black men into special ed, putting them off of a college track, and essentially uh, giving them a scarlet letter for the rest, rest of their educational life in too, far too many instances guaranteed black men having no representation when it came to advancing themselves at a time period where, again, college access was supposed to be synonymous with middle class life. These are the kind of inverted tactics. This is what I meant by an inverted intersectionality. Years before you had the very concept of intersectionality by Kimberly Crenshaw put on the table, you had an inverted intersectionality actually used to undermine and underdevelop black men. We hadn't even talked about incarceration. One of the major tools was the use of the drug wars, right? The very use of the drug wars. At the same time, our women were being sent to schools or were given access to basic level employment. Yes, they were paid less than white women, but they were more often readily employed than black men were able to be. We got the drug wars. So all of these things come together in a very critical way to undermine the advancement of black men to unprecedented degrees that still impact us to this day. And it's important that we learn to challenge these kinds of popular stereotypes and narratives with a critical understanding of what has actually taken place institutionally and how that has shaped our behaviors and our perceptions of each other and our solutions, what we deem a solution to be. How has that too been shaped by the experiences we've had this last number of decades? Right? Again, you've heard this in the Manosphere a number of times. There was a critical point where the black community married higher than almost anybody else. And yet within a 10 year period, we saw a downward spiral when it came to that. Why? Anyway, so uh, Dwayne, appreciate that support. 400 people, 405 people watching. Please like, share and subscribe. Um, you know, this is a, a school night. Uh, I'll be up early teaching again tomorrow. 
I'm still getting used to it. But I nonetheless appreciate your presence and your support. Um, and I am going to transition out. I'm going to, y'all know how I like to do. I'm going to put this on the screen because I really want us to, uh, black men in particular, to become very accustomed to saying this out loud. Well, hold on. That's not the one I want to do. So bear with me for a moment. Um, right. So y'all know how I do. I'm here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, brainless henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, innovators, inventors, leaders, fathers, warriors, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace. I am here to tell you, brothers, ah, we are not. Ah. I'm having all kind of technical problems with today. This is not how I wanted that to go.